This morning we're embarking on a, a new series. We're going to be, this will be the introductory message to a series, um, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. It will uh, be delivered by a plurality of speakers. That means more than one. So you can relax, you're not stuck with me for the right time. So anyway, our beginning paragraph, the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Just read it by introduction, to introduce it. Philippians 1, what we're going to be looking at today is the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning and we ask that as we go through this tremendous letter that you inspired Paul to write and leave to the church, again, Lord, may may those of us who study this and speak this and teach this, may we be accurate. May we hold faithful to the truth of your word. And Lord, we pray as that is done, that your saints here will be edified and you will be glorified. Again, Lord, we ask this for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Now, the church at Philippi, by way of introduction here, it, it has a very interesting and intriguing historical context. There's a historical past. It's a very colorful past. And... As we read through this, I'm just going to give you some points to think about. It's, it's, um, it actually, some of, these, some of these points will come up later on through the book, all right? But <clears throat> one thing, Philippi was located in Macedonia about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Now, if you have your Bible maps, you know where Asia Minor is, modern-day Turkey. You have the Aegean Sea. You cross the Aegean Sea. You're there in modern Greece slash Macedonia. That's where Philippi is located. Now, the, the city was originally called Cronitis, or Cronitis. I'm not your Cronitis, sounds like an ailment. You know, yeah, take two aspirins, call them in the morning. Meaning springs, probably due to the presence of springs in the area, which, uh, and the area was provided with ample fresh water supply. It was also known for its uh, nearby gold mines. And that, too, plays into its uh, history. Now, in 356 B.C., and there's a reason I'm going back this far in history, Philip II of Macedonia annexed the city as part of Macedonia, fortified it, and expanded it. Why? The gold. Okay? The gold was there. Now, the expansion continued, and even at a larger scale, under his son, Alexander. You might know him as Alexander the Great. That's Philip of Macedonia's son. Now, from there, Alexander the Great took the Greek language and culture eastward all the way to India. Okay, and that's important. That, that, that really is important. Now, around 168 BC, we need to move forward here in history, Rome conquered Macedonia, and Rome is now in charge. So that's now... That whole area now, Macedonia, including obviously Philippi, is now part of Rome. Rome is definitely in charge. Move forward in history. Uh, In 42 BC, there was a battle. It was called the Battle of Philippi by some. And um, it took place between the forces of Antony and Octavian. You might, those names might ring a bell from even high school history. and who, de- who went to war with and defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius. Those two might be familiar names. Now, the battle marked the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. Now, soon afterward, Philippi was made a Roman colony, and that's important. That will, that, actually, that term will be mentioned, is mentioned in scripture, with all the benefits of Rome, Roman citizenship, and there was many benefits. Also, uh, people like Antony and others, as their 
soldiers, God of retirement age, um, Philippi became a major re a retirement center for military people. Okay, and that will have an influence on things said even in Philippians, in the letter. Now, in 31 BC, Octavian defeated the forces of Antony. Well, wait a minute. What? I thought they were partners. Yeah, they were. <laughs> yeah, they were. But if you study history, a lot of times, well, it's like, for example, Alexander the Great, when he conquered everything, then he died young, and his, the nation that he conquered was broken up into four pieces under four generals. Guess what they did? Later on, eventually, they start warring with each other. We want, always going for power, always going for the power. Well, same thing here. So, Octavian defeated the forces of Antony and Cleopatra of Egypt. Now, I know you've heard of her, okay? Uh, and with, at a famous naval battle of Actium, all right? Now, that, that was a famous naval battle there. And then in 29 BC, Octavian was now the sole head of the empire. Okay, he, was, he was the top dog. He changed, he changed his name to Caesar Augustus, another name we should be very familiar with. This is the very same one who later made the decree that a census be taken throughout the empire. This decree is referenced in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which we read about just not too many weeks ago. And remember, that, what did that do? That caused Joseph and Mary to head to Bethlehem and register. Now, at the, at the, at the time of Paul, We'll move up to the time of Paul now. Paul's missionary journeys uh, through the Roman Empire was now at this point the Roman Empire was well established. Rome, by the you know, Rome was they were they were in control of virtually everything around the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, some people called the Mediterranean Sea a big Roman lake. I mean, they they just were. You can just go all the way around the rim, and eventually, you know, they moved out and even got into what we know today as England, Great Britain. I mean, they were just all over the place. They just kept expanding, but right there, during the time of Paul, they were at their heyday. Really, They were, they were probably as powerful as they ever were. Okay. Now, the city of Philippi was strategically located on the Via Ignacia, Via Ignacia, which is the Roman highway that ran all the way through the Roman Empire, connecting the empire. You, you go on roads, you, you go to the, like, the road that Paul was on, you go right up, boom, you stop, well, you see he's in Troas, he stopped, well, you got the Aegean Sea, no problem. Part of that road, part of that Roman highway was a ship system where you get on ships and you, you cross the Aegean Sea, you pick up the road on the other side and keep traveling, okay? So it was, that was all part of that highway system. You know, like in some places, like uh, you get up, say, up to the Puget Sound where they've got ferries that, you know, as uh, some place they got bridges, some place they got ferries. Now, if one has the eye to see, you look over human history, I'm telling you, you can see the hand of God work through this history. Just in this little piece of history here from, you know, 356 B.C., to Paul's, this would be now his second missionary journey that we're going to be talking about in the founding of Philippi. I mean, just let's just review just a few little, few of these little points. Alexander the Great spreads the Greek language and culture eastward. Now, the Greek language was going to be, I guarantee you Alexander didn't know it, although that was Alexander's uh, goal was to spread culture, and Rome kept that up. Oftentimes, you've heard the term the Greco-Roman Empire because they, they kept a lot of language. Now, they did, Latin was there too. Matter of fact, Latin was in Philippi, although Greek was there and the prominent language. And Philippi was like a little mini Rome. I mean, they Roman architecture, and they were proud and happy to be Roman citizens. There's a lot of benefits to being a Roman citizen. A lot of benefits. Okay, so Alexander spreads the language, this Greek language, which is very specific language would become the language of the New Testament. As the New Testament era begins to open, again, we got the decree of Augustus is given, prompting Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem. We know the story we just heard a few weeks ago. Now, Paul 
as a citizen of Rome, Paul had Roman citizenship. He had the freedoms of Roman citizenship, enabling him to travel across the entire empire at will. You're a citizen, you got travel, you can go. When you look at all these circumstances, and I'm telling you, this is not simply a stroke of luck, in my opinion. This is, not, this is the hand of God moving through history, setting up, uh, just providentially moving through history. I mean, Jesus said, you know, I will build my church. I mean, you know, he said that, uh, but I'll tell you, God was actively involved in this whole process, right? Matter of fact, you can go back, if you do any study of theology, where a section of theology called the decrees of God, the decrees of God that basically things that God had decreed before he even started creation. I mean, these decrees of God, I'm convinced this is part of all that. The word God says, this is my plan, and then creation on, we, we, are, we witness through the scriptures his plan of redemption as it unfolds throughout all of history. And Philippi was a part of that, a major part of that. Now, the founding of the church at Philippi. For that, we need to look back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time there. Acts chapter 16. As a matter of fact, now, the church at Philippi was founded around 52 A.D., plus or minus. Now, a lot of the, now, when you get into this, even though we're in A.D. now, we're still talking ancient history. Dates are, you know, what they are. And so there's a, these aren't hard, fast dates. 52 A.D. by most Bible scholars are as close. There's a little window in there. There always is. There, there has to be. There has to be. But uh, anyway, it's around 52 A.D. That, that'll come in, that date will come important a little bit later. Now, once again, we see the hand of God at work. It's more visible and more obvious in Acts than it is throughout just human history, looking back and say, oh, I can see what's going on. We're gonna, it's going to be stated as God's work here. Now, our story begins with Paul deciding to visit the brethren in every city in which we presented the word of the Lord, and he's referring back to his first missionary journey where he founded some churches, and uh, as wisdom would dictate, hey, we need to go back and see how these folks are doing, you know. And so 15, in, in Acts 15.36, it says, And after some days, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the, the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, I'm going to skip the kerfuffle that... Uh, to put it mildly, that Paul and Barnabas had the argument over uh, Mark's cousin, John Mark, who bailed out on him on the first missionary journey, so Paul didn't want to trust him on the second one, and, 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 uh, and Barnabas said, oh man, he's my cousin, and he says, I don't care, no, and he just, he just didn't want to do it, so anyway, it was a very strong dissension, and enough that they split. And so the actual journey begins now in verse 40 of chapter of Acts 15. But Paul chose Silas and departed being committed to the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, which is <clears throat> exactly what you would uh, picture Paul doing. And as a matter of fact, that was his ministry, founding churches, strengthening the churches, getting them set up as strong as he possibly could with the time the Lord gave him. That is, you want to know how church planting is done? Read, read about Paul, okay? Uh, read about Paul. That's how you do it. In, in our day, and, and <clears throat> you, know, that's, you, you got to get them there, get them settled, get them firm, and uh, get them a firm foundation in the word. Now, let's, in Acts 16, let's look at verses 1 through 3 to get started here. And he, came, and he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who, had, who, had, <clears throat> who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him. And because of the, Jew, because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, you read these three 
this opening passage here, these verses, Timothy here is added to the team, and Paul obviously saw something special in Timothy. You know, more could be said of Timothy, and actually will be, when we get into chapter 2, because more is said of him there, and he, and he would be better discussed at that time. But just as a preview of coming attractions, men like Timothy just don't fall out of the trees. Men like Timothy are raised up. And you, when we get there to chapter 2, I'm hoping that is brought out. Because it, Timothy, to get to the point where he is listed as, even though Paul was the writer, he's listed Paul and Timothy, the sentiments of Paul are the sentiments of Timothy. And Timothy had a, big, a large hand in the founding of this, of this church. Okay, so we'll just, again, we'll, we'll table that till another time. Now, read verse, back in now verse 6. We'll just move forward to verse 6. And we can see here where the Holy Spirit directs them to Macedonia. The Holy Spirit directs them there. They just didn't flip a coin and jump on a boat. Okay, as a matter of fact, Paul, wanted other, Paul had in his heart other places that he wanted to go. Verses 6 through 10, let's, start, let's, let's read that. And they passed through the Phydrian and Galatian region, having been, for, having been this, the wording here is interesting, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Hmm, okay. And when they had come to Mycenae, they were trying to go in, into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Just to point out, in case, there's, if, if, in case anybody might be a little bit confused, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are the same third person of the Trinity. Okay? That's an, the Holy Spirit has many different titles throughout Scripture. Here's two different ones, right? The Holy Spirit's the one we're most familiar with. And the Spirit of Jesus. Verse 8, And passing to, by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Ah, and a vision appeared to Paul in the, in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Good call, team. <laughs> Good call, team. That's it. The Holy Spirit said, No over here, no over there. And then he gets a vision. Come on over here. <laughs> to Macedonia, and they, they go. Now, <clears throat> don't you sometimes wish God would communicate that way? <laughs> so it's now, oh, Lord, which way do we go here, you know? But he, uh, he doesn't, so like we say, you know, he said, suck it up and live with it. That's, <laughs> that's where we are, and that's where we walk by faith. You know, we walk by faith. We just say, we walk by the principles of the word of God. That's all we've got, but that's enough. And that isn't, if we are honest and faithful about it, that is enough. Okay, now, another little, another interesting point in verse 10 of chapter 16. That word we, that's important. We, we started this, we started chapter 16, verse 1, it says, and he came, speaking of Paul, and he came to Derby, and now it's we sought to go into Macedonia. Does that tell us anything? Let me put it this way. Who wrote the book of Acts? Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, who's the penman? Luke. And Luke, as the historian, the penman, says, we, at this point, Luke joins the team. And we departed. Luke, another faithful man of God. You, you'll see Luke again. He'll be mentioned periodically through there. But... One thing that always stuck in my head about, about Luke is when in 2 Timothy, the letter to 2 Timothy, the very last letter Paul wrote, period, when he was on death row, says, when everybody bailed out on him, only Luke is with me. So Luke, Luke stuck there faithfully for years. Now, the gospel, now, verse, uh, let's pick it up, verse 11 through 15. Therefore, putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. It, uh, 
in mine, you see Roman in, a, in uh, <clears throat> italics to fill in for it. That, that's what it means because it was a Roman colony just for the, us, the readers, uh, centuries later. So it was a colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went, out, went, went outside the gate to a riverside where we supposedly that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who were head assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, Old Testament saint, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the whole team went to Lydia's house, who obviously had a nice big roomy house. Okay? Now, here we go. This, quite frankly, you know, this is a milestone moment. Here we have the gospel has now been introduced on the continent of Europe. This is a milestone moment. This is the first. This is a big deal. The gospel now enters Europe. All right? And Lydia and her household, they were of the first converts. And I can't help, I'm here, I can't help but noticing in verse 14, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You know, that's the way it is in evangelism. Our responsibility is to share the gospel in a very clear, understandable manner. But the gospel, being the word of God, is a sword, not a club. Through the, through the grace of God, it does its work. All we need to do is just be accurate about it. Actually, all we need to do is just, why don't we just get out there, okay? We just need to get out there, what we need to do, and just give it, give it. it it'll do its own. It's like Spurgeon said years ago, hey, the word of God is like a lion in a cage. Turn it loose. Turn it loose. It'll go. It'll do its thing. You know, and that's true. You see that. I mean, the, God is on the side of the gospel. Put it out there. And if we come across one that he's going to tap on the shoulder, fine. If you know what, you can go. I remember years ago doing door-to-door stuff. And you, you do meet some very interesting people, but uh, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. And, you know, more doors are going to be not slammed in your face, but you'll get, more no, you'll get a whole lot more no thank yous, not interested, leave me alone, never bother me again, type responses and, oh, tell me more. Now you'll get those. And some of those are, are, are very joyous. And salvations do occur that way. But that's... That's the hard way. That's really, door-to-door door is a hard way to do it. There's a lot of other ways to do it, especially nowadays, you know, in an area like this when, you know, uh, the fences are up and the dogs are loose in the yard, you know. You got, if you can get past Cujo, you can go talk to the people inside. <laughs> you know, but anyway, um, you know, but that's it. Just, just do it. it. That's all we got to do. And you, and you know what? If you share the gospel... And you're rejected over and over and over and over again. That's okay. You have honored God anyhow. You have honored God anyhow. Because you are doing God's will. Paul wasn't successful with everybody he talked to. I mean, just count, count the beatings he took for sharing with people. I mean, that's, that's, that's life in evangelism. Let's look at some more converts in chapter 16. I'm going to skip a, a lot of things, but let's move over to verse 22. 22 to 34. We move past an incident where uh, Paul, through, again, the power of the Holy Spirit, exercised a demon out of a gal that was making money for her handlers. Well, that got Paul in trouble and thrown in prison. And... Um, so verse 22, and the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes and <clears throat> tore their robes off of them. That tore their robes off of them. That means Paul and Silas. Tore their robes off of Paul and Silas 
<clears throat> and proceeded in order to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. I mean, they're down in the hole, legs with leg irons on. They're 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 there. They're fastened. Now. <clears throat> And, uh, all right, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas, I love this. Now, we're going into the, the epistle to the Philippians. And I'll get a little ahead of myself, but the epistle of the Philippians is often nicknamed the epistle of joy. And, it's, and here's another situation, not joy. You, you can have joy even when things aren't going all that great. Look at this. They're in stocks. They were beaten with rods. We're going to find out when they shouldn't have been. And they're tied in stocks when they shouldn't have been. And here we are now, verse, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And I love this added clause. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know, that's another way of, so I say through music, the gospel sung through music. That's why here we, we strive to have to sing songs and hymns that are biblically accurate because we not only read and study the truth, we sing the truth so people hear the truth. Another way of hearing the truth, you know. And then suddenly there's a great earthquake and the foundation and anyway, the doors were all open, the chains fell off. And when the jailer had been roused up out of sleep, verse 27, and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners has escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. I mean, when you have an earthquake that drops the chains off of the shackles off of people's ankles, Doors, the doors of the prison are kicked open and nobody left. I guarantee you, there's people in there that wanted to go. I, mean, I did approximately 10 years in prison ministry. I didn't meet, any, I didn't meet one guy that, well, hell, I'd like to hang around for another three years. <laughs> I, 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 I did not meet that person. If they exist, I never met one. <laughs> you know, and, and I was up there for 10 years, not as an inmate, but I was up there for around 10 years. Now, Verse 30, and I love this. They were, they were singing hymns and praising God. It's not verse 25. And he called, he went up, to, went up and fell down before Saul. And, and this is what the guy said. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, this is the, the, the jailer speaking. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But where did that notion come from? It came from the songs they were singing. The praise they were singing. I, it's all, that's the information we're given here. And then verse 31. And, and they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. We don't want to stop there because some people might find, Is that the gospel? Oh yeah, just believe in Jesus. And some people, that is their gospel. No, that is not the gospel. Let's go to the next verse. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. That is, the, God, the gospel isn't one slick little sentence. There's much, there's many parts to the gospel, like who Jesus is, what did he do, what, what must one believe, you know, you got things, little thing called the resurrection that has to be dealt with. I mean, there's a lot to this gospel that has to be said. And sometimes you read a verse like this without getting a better context, you get the idea, oh, just, oh just, just, just believe in Jesus. No, 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 that's not the gospel. No, no, no. You can get that from, many of the cults will, will give you that. But in the, in the cults, the Jesus they're talking about is not the Jesus in this book. Okay? So we need to keep that in mind. Now, we need to move on. Um, but now we'll go to the time and place of the writing. Not going to spend a lot of time here. Again, the time was approximately 60 to 62 AD. Now that's about 10 years after the church, the founding. The church was approximately 52, and we can just take them, and this one could be probably 61, 62, so eight, nine, 10 years later, here we are. Paul is writing this letter. Now, 
the place of the writing, there are three possibilities. The most probable one, and I'm just going to go with that one this morning, is when he was kept under guard actually in Rome. And we can see that in Acts 28, verse 16. Remember, Paul finally got into Rome. And when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Okay, so he was actually shackled to a soldier. He was under, somehow, you know, he was right there under the eyes of a soldier 24-7. Okay? And then you move down to verse 30 of 28. You get the last two verses of the book of Acts. And he, that's Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered that too will have um, <clears throat> will be uh, have, give, have a great effect and we'll see that too in, 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 the, in the book of Philippians those kind of things are alluded to the fact that Paul's incarceration uh, actually leads to the strengthening of the faith in the brethren I mean Paul is doing it Paul is hanging in there hey we can too you know it's, it's not a misery loves company thing. It's, like, it's a matter of learning. Oh, okay. And, and, and people like, you can learn from people like Paul and Silas. My goodness. How many people we get beaten by rods, shackled up into the lower part of the prisons and the down of the dungeon part, and your thought is, I think I'm going to, let's sing hymns and praise God for all this. It does sound crazy, doesn't it? But you know what? Not to Paul. Not to him. I mean, that speaks volumes to the spiritual makeup of the Apostle Paul. This guy was a giant. He's a giant. It's these kinds of shoulders that we stand on. Okay, this man was a giant. A giant. Now, Philippians along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, were all believed to be written from Rome at the approximate same time, from the year 60 through 62 AD. Matter of fact, these four, these four letters are commonly referred to as the prison epistles, okay? And because he was in, incarcerate, incarcerated at that time, as a matter of fact, he's there, he was there, you can read on, he was there for two years in Rome, but remember, there's about three and a half years uh, or excuse me, about two and a half years prior to getting to Rome that he was under arrest. He got arrested in Jerusalem, okay? And then he was, he was in prison in Caesarea for about two years. And then there was a good six-month trip guarded by Roman soldiers to get to Rome. So when you put all that together, you're talking four and a half years easy that he was under prison guard. So, I mean... It's not just this two years in the house. This is probably, that's probably the nicest part of it, you know, in the house. And we had t tremendous freedom. But no, that man, that man was, um, was, under, was, was under, under lock and key, basically, for that whole four and a half year period. Now, why do we want to study the book of Philippians? Well, number one reason, it's the word of God. Okay? We can go with that. I can, I can say that about any book of the Bible. However... Philippians now is a, a very unique book in that. Now, Philippians, we're going to find out here, is um, of, of the four prison epistles, it, um, it's very, I associate it more with the letter to Philemon than the others. There's theology in this book, but it's a more of a personal kind of a letter, like the letter to uh, Philemon is, you know, where he's there, um, Talking, it's like one person put it, it's, it's, a, it's a friend talking to friends, okay? This was a, yeah, they had some problems. They had some problems. We're going to see that along the way. But overall, this was a pretty squared away church. This was really a pretty squared away church. I mean, especially if you compare it to something like Corinth, okay? I mean, it was pretty, reason one. Philippians is a letter that defines true joy, as a spiritual grace that we all need to experience in our lives. I mean, literally, too often, you know, living in this fallen world full of stress and anxiety, 
I mean, there's so many opportunities to have something happen to steal your joy, our joy, and the accompanying peace of God that comes with it. I mean, you know, it's, you know, we, I know, I know the, the politicians, some of them are telling us how wonderful the, uh, the economy is now, but they don't shop at my store. They don't, they don't fill up their tank at my gas station, but I tell you, everything's wonderful. But um, they don't see the people on our streets, I guess. But um, no, these events and the stress of time, I mean, there's, you know, war in Europe, war in the Middle East, Asia's messing around, North Korea's messing around, you know, hey, what could possibly go wrong, you know? But all this stuff stresses people out. It stresses people out, you know? Uh, especially if, you know, you, you don't have a lot of money and things are tight and you just, you know, you're, you're in this, this world, you're living from paycheck to paycheck. You, you, hey, it can get you. It, it, can, it can stress you out. I mean, it can if we lose our focus, which is too easy to do. I, I know from personal experience, it is way too easy to lose your focus and thus lose your joy. I mean, it's a battle for me. It really is. It really is. It really is. I mean, hey, and even events in the church can cause the same reaction. Who are we trusting? Trust God. Trust God. And we're going to find out that's a huge point in this letter as well. Now, this letter points us to the true joy that comes from God, not the false happiness offered by the world. And with all of its false hopes and promises, Philippians, again, is often referred to as the epistle of joy. That's what it's nicknamed. Now, a commentator, one of the guys I use, Richard Lenski, wrote, quote, Joy is the music that runs through this epistle, the sunshine that spreads over all of it. The, the whole epistle radiates joy and happiness. And it does. It does. Even in the midst of trials. Let me just look at Paul's joy. The letter opens, and we can go back to uh, Philippians. The letter opens uh, right there, 1 through 7, and... Um, <clears throat> Verse 4 says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Why? In view, <clears throat> in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Hey, that brings joy to the man that founded that church. That would bring joy to his heart to see that this church that he founded was with him from the start even to the writing when he is in chains still. Okay. Uh, for, like I say, four and a half years. And he just, his joy over their participation with him in the gospel, and he's referencing, he's referring to the financial support. Okay, financial support. That he's funding him. And um, he even talks later about that even when, you know, when he left, when he founded Philippi, the next church he went to was, he just moved down the highway. In Thessalonica was the next one. And he goes, oh, even in Thessalonica, you guys came across with some money. You know, help me out. I mean, they were, they were there. They received the gospel, and they supported the gospel. And what better way to support the gospel than support the man that's spreading it, okay? And so they supported the gospel by supporting Paul. That's why we support missionaries. Same reason. Now, Paul also referred to them in, the, the, uh, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm not, we're not going to turn to all those. But he referred to them as the church as my joy. You Philippians are my joy. Just, again, from the start, first chapter to the last chapter of this book, you Philippians are my joy. And, you know, we can see through in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, uh, and also, well, actually, the, the remainder of chapter 1, where he says, you can break that up into two, two parts, they're easy. He goes, he had joy in spite of his imprisonment. He makes no bones about it. He, in spite of his imprisonment, he sees the, the, the validity there. He, it actually helped in his mind, the gospel, because he took advantage of where he was. I mean, that's for Paul. I get Paul would be a tremendous study. I mean, just just himself, what he did and how he went. I mean, you think of him here. He's in prison, okay? What's he, he's, he's, he's allowed to have visitors. So he sends out to the synagogue, and hey, bring the Jews in here. I want to talk to them. So he started bringing in synagogue leaders and talked to them. Hey, and you just read the Elkiah. Okay, some believe, some didn't. That's, you see that in Acts 28. All right, but hey. He just, he, he was there. He was there. And that's, Paul never, he didn't let anything get in his way of sharing the gospel. Nothing, nothing would stop him. This, this man was tremendous. And then 
And you read further on in the chapter one, it says joy, he had joy even with the real possibility of death hanging over his head. With the real possibility of death hanging over his head. Matter of fact, in chapter two, verses uh, 17 and 18, I'll just share this. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service, the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. Okay? And then he goes on to say in verse 18, And to you, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Okay? Because, see, this was a time that suffering and persecution was starting to increase, is increasing, getting worse and worse every day. And um, again, this letter has tremendous meaning. Uh, and verse 25 of chapter 1, um, <clears throat> he says, I'm convinced of this. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Their joy was in their faith in God. And see, they learned that from Paul, too. It wasn't from externals. It was from their faith in God. Their joy came from within as God moves in their life. And I'll tell you, how you get this joy isn't from sitting in the, in the room wondering what you're going to do next. The joy that this, that this letter of Philippians is referring to is the joy you get from actively ministering in the body of Christ and without evangelism, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the real joy comes from. You know, it's, it's, you know, this is one thing we never do is, you know, oh Lord, show me what I need to do. Tell me, show me a sign. Here, you got your sign right here. I got 66 books of signs. <laughs> I mean, it's there. I mean, it's, what we need to do is it's already spelled out for us. It's, it's like uh, when it comes to discipleship. I remember one preacher years ago, and I, I, he, said, he made this statement, and it's stuck with me ever since when he says, you know, one of the things the church really needs to do is just get up off its blessed assurance and get out there. That's the key to evangelism. Just go. Just do it. Do it. Just do it. And here, you want an example? Read about Paul. Read about Paul, and I'll tell you what. It, I read everything Paul did, and it... Quite frankly, I'm embarrassed. He's done so much compared to me. I mean, it's, the man was a dynamo. Reason two, that reason two, just to learn reason two for this letter, and we're going to have to pick up the pace here. There are encouragements and exhortations to better, to better live the life God intends for us. On top of that, the, the, and that's always in Paul's letters. This is a good church, but Paul, I mean, he starts out early in the book where he says, your love, he says, I hope, I pray that your love may abound more and more. They had the love, they were showing the love, they were getting, they were doing the, what they could for where they were, but, it, but it, you know, let it go more and more. In other words, don't be, wherever you are in your spiritual walk, don't be satisfied there. I guarantee you, none of us has arrived. I've been at this thing close to 50 years now. I am so far from the finish line. I've, so much work needs to be done for me. Just keep moving, keep trying, keep working. And his, he goes, like, approve things that are excellent. Be sincere, be blameless. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Practice humility. And prayer is emphasized throughout this book. Prayer is emphasized throughout. Reason number three. Philippians is a doctrinally rich book, although it's not a, it's not a doctrinally treatise. It's more of a practical, you know, it's, it's more of along the lines of what we call practical theology as opposed to systematic theology. Now, the Philippians is doctrinally rich. I'll tell you, one example is one that we heard a message on back in December. Philippians 2, the kenosis chapter or section that I'll tell you, it's one of the most... <coughs> magnificent teachings about the person of Christ and explains a whole lot of things of, about the things that Christ actually did and said in his earthly ministry that, that people look at and say, well, he's not equal with the Father. He keeps saying, well, I go to the Father. He tells me what the... Well, if you know about 
But it says, but Christ existed being fully, I mean, this, this, this section teaches us that Christ existed being fully God prior to creation. It tells us on, that of his own free will, he put aside his glorious position and became a man, i.e. fully God, fully man. Little thing called the hypostatic union. We'll get into that, or somebody will. Okay, and as the God-man humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, which was reserved for the vilest of the vile. That's where he wound up. And like I say, that by itself is huge. That's one of the most magnificent. It's right there with what was so wonderfully read to us earlier, John 1. It's, man, they're right there. You put those two together, you've got a Christology that won't quit. It's, you can go a long way on that. It's, it tells you really almost virtually everything you need to know about who Christ is. Okay? And reason number four, and I'm just going to mention this one. Much emphasis is placed on the gospel. The word gospel is used nine times in a variety of contexts. So are other gospel-related terms like salvation, believe, faith. Those terms are all used because they're all important. And so you've got all this emphasis that we're going to see just spread out through this book. And again, and then there's the joy factor, like um, Linsky put it. It was like, like the music just kind of flowing, flowing through. I like that. You know, that's, that's why... I, I wish I could make up stuff like that, you know? I guess that's why he wrote commentaries and I don't. Okay. Anyway, now back to the text. That was the introduction, now the message. Okay, that was the introduction. Okay, the message won't be equally as long, but I hope it will be beneficial. Now, I'll start off, I'll, I'm going I'm to read the text again. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of, Je of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, due to the limited time, I, I kind of knew this was coming, but that's okay. The topic of overseers and deacons are going to have to be tabled for a later date. If you're so inclined, I know during our Sunday school time, we're going through, we call it systematic theology, more like gleanings and systematic theology. We're just going through, we're talking to the Holy Spirit right now. When we get into the doctrine, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, we'll go back, we can pick up elders and deacons there, which overseers, another term for elder. So we'll get that at a later date. Now, verse one and two. Paul and Timothy, bonds are literally slaves of Christ Jesus. And if you've got a legacy standard Bible, you'll see it, that word slaves instead of bond servant. Bond servant, technically correct, a bond servant, a servant under bondage. See, slave, doulos, literally means one who is owned by another. Slave is slave. It's just what you think it is. Now, this is not going to be a conversation or discussion on slavery. Slavery was a whole lot Well, mostly speaking, slavery was different, like in Israel, and was different than, in most cases, than the slavery we're familiar with in the history of our country. That kind of slavery is actually condemned in Scripture. But again, that's a topic for another day. That's a topic for another day. Now, doulos being applied to Paul and Timothy. Now remember, Paul being the writer, Holy Spirit being the author, Paul being the writer, the penman, under the Holy Spirit wrote that, Paul applying that word to himself and Timothy is making a statement. And that statement is, we belong to Christ Jesus. He is our Lord and Master. You want to know why he, Paul did the things he did? It's his relationship to Christ as the slave of Christ. Therefore, as the slave of Christ, Paul's thinking, I am going to do the will of Christ because he owns me. Okay? That's, that's important to realize. And I just have to ask the question. 
Is this how we individually view our relationship with him? We are slaves of Christ? Just something to think about. I'm not pointing fingers, because if I do that, I got at least three pointing back this way. So I don't, I'm not going to do that. The word saint, hagios, which literally means sacred, pure, holy ones. Hagios, again, it's a term given to the, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Those people are all called saints, holy ones. You go, really? You know, holy. Yeah, if, if you're a saint, remember, there's, remember the two types of people in this world? The saints and the ain'ts? Mm-hmm. Remember them? The saints and the ain'ts? If you're a saint, that means you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a saint, you are referred to in this inspired letter and many, many others. <laughs> you are referred to as a saint, a holy one. You say, oh, come on. Oh, the answer is, even me? Yes, the answer to that question, if you're asking it, me, the answer is yes, even you. If you are a believer, yes, you are a saint. This word was also used of the Corinthian church. So, okay, they, those that believed, members of the Corinthian church, were saints. Well, how in the world can that be? Those guys were messing up every which way. Well, do you remember, again, last, we went through the, the Advent series. You remember 2 Corinthians 5? 21. Remember that verse? That was a, a message was based on that whole verse. Remember that one? If you want to go there, go ahead. I, I've got it in my notes. I'm just going to read it to you. If you want to follow in your Bible, go ahead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin and you see to be is in italics. To be sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, you look at that, if you the to be in italics, remember those are added to the text for clarification, for uh, in our for better understanding the meaning of the of the of the passage. And I'm glad good Bibles do that. Okay? Good Bibles do that. They let you know this is being added by the the the, the editors here for to make it read more fluently and make it a little bit more understandable. But I'm glad they do that. If without that, it says, he made him who knew no sin, sin. Okay? And why? On our behalf, that we might become the righteous of God. Now, he, that's the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, totally sinless. Remember, the, the perfect Lamb of God, he's that Lamb without spot, without wrinkle, Okay, made him sin on our behalf. On our behalf? Yeah, on our behalf. Our sin, and remember, this was part of the message. Remember, this was an extremely important point. Our sin was imputed to Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, on that cross. Our sin was imputed to him. He literally like this, who knew no sin to be sin. He was sin. He did. Okay, why? And it goes on. That we might be the righteousness of God in him <clears throat> because of his substitutionary death on the cross. Not only are our sins washed away, but he, and, and this is the one that's mind-boggling, he also imputed to us his righteousness. That is why we can be called Saints, holy ones. And you notice this whole process? There isn't one thing we did to get that way. It's all on him. Think back. Remember Lydia? The Lord opened her heart. The same thing. It's pretty obvious too with the, the Philippian jailer as well. And then there's that little phrase, very, very popular little, in him, in him, speaking of Christ, in him, in Christ. That in him, in Christ is all over Paul's writings. I mean, I don't think there's, I don't know if there's a, 
of course, the, the minute I say it's in everyone, then somebody, oh, I found a book in that. <laughs> you know, but it's in, it's, in, it's in Paul's writings. He uses it a lot. He uses it a lot. You know, in him. Being in him describes really the relationship that we have with the one true living God. Our relationship with God is totally dependent on our position in Christ, in him. And apart from that, we have nothing. But because of that, like the Philippians, we can have joy even amidst rotten circumstances. Sometimes you've really got to work on it. You know, you knew that. You know that. But, you know, that's, that's what I try to hang on to in, in some of the bad times. Just like, oh, Lord. Oh. <laughs> and sometimes that's the extent of my prayer. Oh, Lord, you know, just help now question when we think about what Christ has done for us I always have to ask I, you know what have we done for him lately anything constructive anything wholesome holy anything wonderful you know what have, um, and I'm not saying this thing yeah we, we got a lot we got a lot to you know to get even with him but no you're never going to you're never going to get even you're never going to make up that big deficit but you know what again the standard, one standard is, and it's, this is in Philippians 2, be ye holy is, I mean, that, uh, <clears throat> that quote isn't, but the, the uh, call to holiness is in Philippians as well. And the standard is be holy as, as your father is holy. That doesn't mean on this life you're going to maintain it, but that is the standard. That's what we shoot for. Another reason never to be satisfied for where we might be is as a magnificent position as that might be. That's not perfect. We still need to move forward. We cannot live long enough. If, if, they, if they moved everything to where we had the lifespans of, you know, the, the, the pre-Noahic flood, we still wouldn't have enough time to reach perfection, okay? But it will happen. See, that's the beauty of it. It will happen. Now, that is a promise of God. It will happen. And I need to move, move on here. Verse 2. I didn't realize there's so much in two little verses. Now, this verse 2 says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that very common greeting matter of fact this greeting is used by Paul in Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians Galatians Ephesians and Philemon yeah, that, that, and there's similar some as just say uh, uh, instead of saying sometimes uh, they'll just say grace to you and peace from God our Father or they'll say grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ but, but that is a very common greeting uh, that Paul used and, uh, and it's, it's very Apropos to a to each church of believers, right? Grace, grace. This isn't talking about saving grace per se, but it is a result of it. Grace, as used in this greeting, is a desire expressed to the saints. You know, well, John Ede, another guy, John Ede, described it this way: that many-sided favor that comes in the form of hope to saints in despondency, of joy to them in sorrow of patience to them in suffering, of victory to them under assault. That's the grace of God. May that grace be with it. When, when times aren't, are less than perfect, shall we say, his, his prayer, his desire for the church, and I, that's my desire for everybody here, that that would be you. you you're at a place of suffering, you know. Uh, you're, you would, maybe you could still have Pray that you would still have joy amidst sorrow, victory in the midst of being under assault. You know, just, just pray that the grace, God's grace, would just move. And then peace. Okay, this is not the peace with God as written in, five, in Romans 5.1. You know, the peace with God. Romans 5.1 is talking about having peace with God as in uh, that peace is the absence of war. You know, if you're not a believer... Whether you realize that, you are actually at war with God. You are enemies of the cross. And I know most people don't realize that. And, but that's the truth. And so this peace is different. This peace from God is that peace of God which passes all comprehension. Which, by the way, is right out of Philippians 4.7. So that will be discussed down the road. Again, it's all coming. 
It's all going that way. And again, you know, I can't think of a better place than right here to just <clears throat> stop and pray and let's get ourselves ready for the communion table, okay? That, you know, when you think back on what we've discussed here about the grace of God being in him and what he did for, and this is what we're, that's what we're going to be commemorating with the Lord's table, you know, that he did pay that price for us. And we, we look back, we remember, lest we forget, as they say, that we never forget, that we always are mindful of why we are here and what it took to get us here. Yes, salvation is free to us, but it cost plenty. It cost Messiah Jesus, his life. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer and then move into the Lord's table. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, with thanksgiving. We pray that, um, indeed, each and every one of us, when difficulties arise, that we could somehow get this joy that's going to be expressed throughout this letter. But Lord, may we too just as we approach the communion table, let's, let us not forget. Let us truly remember what you did for us. And let us, in light of that fact, take your word to others as you would have us do. Amen.